welcome to PB and Justice, the Price Benowitz podcast, where you join our hosts, Dane Phillips and Mitch Greenberg, on their journey to prove what makes our lawyers different and why our lawyers have chosen to pursue a life of fighting for justice. This episode is hosted by Dane Phillips and was originally recorded for our criminal defense podcast, Obstructing Injustice. Sit back and enjoy the show. Our guest today is Olog Fastovsky. He's a criminal defense attorney in Maryland for Price Benowitz LLP, where he can be found in a courtroom fighting for his clients on a daily basis when he's not in quarantine. I'm, I'm uh, pleased to see that he put on a tie where I just left on my polo. So uh, still glad to have him given the extraordinary circumstances that we're all going through. But he did graduate from the University of Baltimore School of Law, magna cum laude. Uh, for seven years, he was an associate professor at the Baltimore School of Law, where he was the head coach for the national competition team. He's also a guest lecturer on gun laws and cannabis laws very frequently on those topics. He's also been an instructor at the Maryland Police Academy for constitutional law. He's very active in his community and providing pro bono services for indigent clients, as well as uh, just over all community service opportunities uh, that are local to his area it gives back, you know, like all good criminal defense attorneys where the service first. And so we just want to welcome you to the show and uh, I'm glad to be here. Well, I guess, you know, the first thing that I always go into with somebody is, you know, this is a lawyer podcast, you know, specifically a criminal defense lawyer podcast. Uh, why did you want to become a lawyer? It's actually interesting uh, in this time with this quarantine, and what we're dealing with now in that I um, graduated from, uh, well, finished grad school back in 2001. In uh, May, I was uh, relocated to San Diego by a biotechnology company. My master's was in professional writing. And I worked in the biotech field, doing technical writing, marketing, very technical, scientific type of level stuff, nothing to do with law. And about three weeks after I moved out there, 9-11 happened. And when that happened, the economy was in shambles. Companies all over the board were being shut down, downsizing. In fact, even though I was based out of San Diego, one of the big overarching companies was in New York and was greatly affected by this. After several months of that company, I was let go with about one third of the entire staff. And I spent a few years just kind of trying to find my way. And one thing I was very proud of was I was 23 years old, master's degree, ahead of my game, ready to go forward. And my life was stagnated. And after a few years, I actually just decided I needed to take a step back, take two forward. My sister's an attorney, my stepfather's an attorney, and they both talked to me that said, you have the personality and drive that would go well with the courtroom. And with, I looked into it and realized this is um, a great opportunity for me. One thing that I want to do, so I moved back to Baltimore, where I was originally from, where I, was, where I grew up and went to the University of Baltimore and uh, finished law school that way. It just drove me. Many students hate law school. They can't stand it, they can't stand the studying. I was different. I loved every second of it because I saw myself moving forward again. I saw myself going somewhere, and even those late night hours, the weekends, the, the studying, the cramming, all that was a means to an end that I wanted so badly that it didn't bother me or phase me, even though I griped along with everyone else about it. But that truly is an a, just going to the courtroom, helping individuals, making them more of a difference than being stuck in a cubicle, drafting uh, scientific letters and journals all day. 
definitely is a much more rewarding experience. <laughs> Absolutely. So I guess the, the perfect transition then is, well, tell me about you, the beginning of your career. I mean, you, you were excited in law school that you could see that your life was moving in, you know, kind of that purpose-driven area that, you know, it actually made you excited to do all the work. And you're right, most people are incredibly uh, just uh, not happy in law school, but you felt uh, that purpose that was moving into, you know, you knew what the end outcome was. And so how did the beginning of the career start where you actually learned the practice of law and specifically get into criminal defense? Well, it has nothing to do with the fact that my first day in law school was in criminal law, although that definitely did put my, put my uh, attention to that. What I, I was, I tried out for a trial team when I was a first year law student. And typically first year law students don't get into those things, but they, the, the individuals running the program liked what they saw. And I got selected as a first year over second and third year students. And for three years I competed in that and I loved being in trial. In law school, you do a lot of paperwork. You do a lot of research and writing. Having something that's a little bit more real, a little more adventurous or combative was much more appealing and, and, and enjoyable to me. So I found myself for three years doing the program. By the third year, I was team captain. And of our two teams, we got first and third place winning the regional competition over, with over 26 law teams competing from law schools all across the region, including some very, very high tier law schools that we basically handed the rasses to them, <laughs> which was quite rewarding in its way. Uh, and after that, they asked me to take over the program, which is how I became the adjunct faculty for several years until family and the career kind of took over my time and I couldn't do that anymore. But even still, when I was, um, when I graduated law school, I had an appellate clerkship for a year working for an appellate judge, or Judge Ari Davis, who has re since retired years ago. But doing the appellate work gave me a lot of insight into what mistakes happen when a trial does not go right or wrong, depending on which side you're on. And when I finished the appellate clerkship, I actually had a few job offers, some in doing civil work, others criminal. And I decided that criminal was where I wanted to be. That's where I would be in court every day. That's where I'd be helping people with the type of cases I handle are far much more interesting, compelling, and a lot more real than a lot of the other things that are you're just a drone doing paperwork or pushing pencils around, which is why I was drawn to this area that I, that I enjoy so much. Well, I mean, it's one of those where I think you having that opportunity to clerk for an appellate court judge is really just an amazing uh, experience. I, I was an appellate defender coming out of law school, and, I, and I, I tell everybody that I think that having that bedrock foundation of appellate law, having that opportunity, it, it makes you so much of a better lawyer because, again, like you said, you've learned what mistakes to avoid, and you get that thousand-foot view of not only the law in a deep dive of as far as learning the research and really getting a better grasp of how the law is actually applied in real life versus law school. Because I think a lot of people have this misunderstanding that law school has lawyers ready to practice law when they leave. And that's just not true. You know, as we both know that the, you know, the real practice of law is learned. Yeah. I mean, you learned more about how to be a real lawyer in that, you know, uh, course that you had uh, versus the the actual substantive legal courses that you had as far as being on the trial teams. And so I think having that appellate background, uh, without a doubt, in my opinion, is one of the greatest things a young lawyer can have. And so getting into your first criminal defense job, could you tell us about that? Um, it was, I had just about finished my clerkship. It was about August of 2009. 
and uh, I had a few offers on the table, and I actually um, was had a job offer from a criminal defense attorney, and um, he was a one-man show. His associate had gone elsewhere. Actually, I think they moved away to a different state to Pennsylvania, so he had an opening, and he and I, within the first 30 seconds of sitting down talking, he told me later on that I knew that I was gonna he was going to hire me, and I knew I was going to work for him. It was just... Uh, going to court and seeing the things and learning. And he's exactly right. Law school gives you the tools you need to learn to become an attorney, not to be an attorney. Trial team helped being a, being a clinical program. I was a public defender for a semester as well through the clinical program for the law school. It was also nice where I actually represented individuals, had trials in district court. Uh, of course, with the supervision of a, of a barred attorney with a public defender. And of course, the judge and prosecutor knew that I was just a student, so they went a little bit easier on me. But it was still exciting to see that, to do the real life work. And you, you start out doing small things, the little misdemeanors. You work your way up and advance to the point where you're doing very serious felony cases where there's a lot on the line. And you only get that through experience. But having that, uh, the, 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 the learning curve. And one thing that the attorney I worked for, who's been practicing over 30 years, told me, it is the practice of law where you'll always be learning and always be better. It's not the perfection of law. So that's why you'll be learning first year and 30th year. It's certainly an evolution. And when you look back at from those first couple of years of practice to where you are now, it's, it's really mind blowing how much you grow as a lawyer uh, over time. And even the small things that, you know, just make you that much better of, of an advocate. And so I guess what, what would be your advice to young lawyers out there? And you've been in that role of, uh, for, for many years where you helped young lawyers not only sharpen their trial advocacy skills, but, you know, just in general now as a, as a private practitioner, somebody that's in private practice, which is its whole other, it's a whole other animal, as you know, versus working at, you know, the public defender's office or in different other area practice areas. And so being a private practitioner of, of, for criminal defense clients, what would be your advice to young lawyers? And it doesn't have to be that niched as far as criminal defense, but just as far as young lawyers, what do you think is a critical piece of advice that if they had that and they take it to heart uh, could possibly change their, their career? Never be afraid of asking for help or advice from those around you. Networking is so critical and important. There are going to be issues and difficulties and problems and mishaps and mistakes that come your way. And it's a very unlikely you're the first person to go through it. Having a network of individuals you can call upon is so critical. In fact, there's a, a listserv that, I, that I'm, I'm a part of. It's the Maryland Criminal Defense Studies Association. And every day, usually it's about 20 people send a question. Sometimes I have a question. Sometimes I have an answer. And you network with each other to try to work together to get the best result, whether it's asking about a judge you don't know, whether it's asking about a defense strategy or suggestions or a legal issue, or even just staying on top of things such as here's a new Supreme Court decision. Everyone read it. It affects what we do on a daily basis. Having that network is so critical rather than floundering or being afraid to ask. Even individuals who you may think aren't ones to approach sometimes can be helpful. And of course, it depends. I remember when I first started with the attorney that I worked with, criminal defense attorney, I had never been in a circuit court case in my career. And my, the attorney said to me, go in and just, you have to get a postponement. The prosecutors agreed. We don't have the evidence. It's not a problem. The judges set it in for an advanced hearing. It's going to be postponed. Just go in there, stand next to the client, say the date, and you'll get it. 
So I go into court, it's Baltimore City Circuit Court, and I say, well, I'm here for the postponement, we pick the date, prosecutor said that's correct, and the judge says to me, very well, counsel, please advise your client as to Hicks. And I look <laughs> at the judge, and I look at my client, and I have no idea what that means. <laughs> so I tell the judge, court's indulgence, and I walk over to the prosecutor, and I whisper in the prosecutor's ear, I'm just here for postponement, I have no idea what the judge asked me. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> and the prosecutor, very friendly, says, whispers, Mayor, oh, he's telling you, you have to advise your client. He has to waive his right to a speedy trial because it's with passport as your days. That's his Hicks right. Oh, thank you. And I walk back and I say that exact thing to my client. He says, okay, I waive. Judge says, thank you, counsel. And we leave. That's so simple. a very unsurprising, surprising uh, advice and help now. Granted, I wouldn't ask trial strategy of the prosecutor, but we are in a community. We've all been there. And don't be afraid to ask for help or advice or suggestions from the community. So it's important to build that from early on all the way through your career. That's a perfect antidote. And, I, you know, and as far as that advice, I think that's incredible advice because I've found in, in my career, every lawyer that I've ever reached out to for help, I've almost never been turned down. Uh, and I think that's a critical, and I think some people don't realize the value of those resources that are available. You know, the South Carolina Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, we have a listserv as well. And my participation in that listserv, I think definitely led to me being, when I was the president of that organization in 2018, and I can't stress enough to young lawyers to be active in their organizations that are related to their practice areas, because they're so, and, and just cold calling, uh, you know, older lawyers who've experienced, you know, out of 30 or 40 years of practice in law, there's not many things they haven't experienced or haven't dealt with. And if you got a trial coming up, calling them and seeing if they'll brainstorm with you. And I, I've just found uh, that the advice I've been given by, you know, the, the elder statesmen have been, it's been invaluable in my career. So that's great advice. And so as far as mistakes to avoid, I mean, you know, this, that's advice is one thing, but pitfalls and mistakes that criminal defense lawyers make. Now this one, this would be say a niche related questions for criminal defense lawyers. What mistakes or, you know, common pitfalls have you seen that young criminal defense lawyers make that, you know, if you could go back and, and you could talk to uh, your younger self and give this uh, advice, like don't make this mistake. What, what, what advice would be? that you'd be able to give to yourself? The biggest issue that I see with, and it wasn't even myself so much, because I've always been very, very detail-oriented. The problem I see for many pitfalls out there is organization. Having a very disorganized, chaotic office or, pro, or just firm is just gonna lead to problems. Mistakes are gonna happen, but organization is gonna be the key, whether it's how to, scan files in, make sure you follow up, follow the requests, follow the entries, communicate with the clients, convey things. And nothing's more frustrating when I'm in court and I watch another attorney and they're fumbling around for paperwork or forgot something or didn't do something and it just makes them look bad. The clients lose faith in the individual and the attorney and oftentimes it can sabotage a case that otherwise is winnable. It's very, very unfortunate. The other part too is taking time to speak to clients. Now, organization, people have their methods and systems, what might work for one and out for another. But what needs to work and what is important for every attorney is to never forget that when, for the criminal law, when an individual, or it's the individual themselves or it's the family come to you, they're generally scared, looking for help, and want to leave the conversation feeling better rather than worse. 
not a week goes by that I don't have a consultation, even if it's over the phone with somebody. And after the consultation is over, they said, thank you. I feel a little better now or convey that they are a little more at ease. And then I always ask when, I, when they, they tell me they've talked to other attorneys, have they gotten different advice? Have they gotten suggestions? And very frequently I hear one of the, follow, one of the following is that, well, I've talked to other attorneys, but no one explained to me what you did. Sometimes they tell me the attorneys' names they spoke to, and we are a small community. I know most of the attorneys who, who are focused and specialized in this area. And a lot of these attorneys are commendable. They're strong, they're smart, but the individual client doesn't know that. All they have is someone who brushed them off, asked them for money, and hung up the phone. That's going to be a problem because those individuals will end up hiring the person they feel more comfortable with. Additionally is that uh, attorneys, even if they talk, there's an old sales tactic that says you have to create a sense of urgency to get somebody to sell, to, sell, to get somebody to buy it, whatever you're selling, whether it's a car, whether it's a hairbrush, whether it's going to the store. And that it's true for certain things. But a criminal case, you don't have to create a sense of urgency. The it's urgency there. is there. It, the court case is scheduled. You can't avoid it. It's, it's not like you can delay buying a car or rebuilding, painting a house or doing whatever. This case isn't going away. So you don't have to scare the clients because often yeah. I've had clients call me crying because of the attorney they spoke to before they talked to me. And they didn't hire that attorney. They hired me. So never forget that you don't have to scare the individuals. Yes, there's always going to be a certain sales tactic presentation or polish that has to be conveyed. It's not formulaic like that, but you can't lose sight of the fact that these are human beings that are oftentimes terrified and need help. And we're here, we're not counselors as therapists, but we have to make these people feel comfortable and try to feel a little more, a little better about what's happening, the process, and feel confident in our ability to help them. Absolutely. I think making that personal connection. And so these are obviously this is very tough financial times for especially young lawyers who have hung a shingle and went solo and, you know, given the extraordinary circumstances, this is tough. So this is uh, crucial advice for you. I can't stress enough. Uh, and just to kind of echo what you've said, as far as making that personal connection, treating them as if a friend called you asking for advice, not rushing them off the phone, not rushing to quote a price, but to hear them out, to listen to them. Most people just want to be heard. They're overwhelmed by it. And so if you make that personal connection and you build that layer of trust with them, most lawyers don't take the time to do that. And that's the best way to distinguish yourself from your competition is that you're there to listen. You're there to help. And it's not about the money. Now, ultimately, we can't keep the lights on without getting to that part of it. But that shouldn't be the first thing you talk about at all. You should always let, uh, you know, any potential client fully explain everything to you, uh, you know, what happened and, and to get, uh, you know, some follow up questions before you even think about how long is this phone call or consultation in office lasting. And of course, before you ever quote a price, because I think that'll go uh, the furthest way in you establishing that connection that ultimately leads to you getting hired over someone else. Now, all right, so we have this part of uh, the podcast where we call it the obstructing injustice uh, part. So which systemic issue in the criminal justice system bothers you the most? If you, you know, if there's one thing that just 
gets under your skin? You know, what major issue we got, you know, bail reform, junk science, jailhouse snitches, eyewitness misidentification, it, it the systemic issues, the, the list goes on. What's one of the things that just sticks out to you that just, that just, you, it's, it's your issue. Yeah. Obviously there's every attorney has a lot of them. One thing that really is, is, um, I find pre prevalent and problematic, especially for me is the abuse of the, the criminal system. And what I mean by that is by the, our system is designed in a way where a victim can easily seek help. And it's just, if, if it was troublesome, you would have individuals saying, listen, I, I know they stole from me or hurt me, but I don't want to go through that process. It's going to be a colossal pain. I'm just going to let it go. We can't have a society like that. We have to make it a very liberal way where someone can get help easily. And we have that. The problem is it leads to abuses, very, very frequent abuses where people use the courts as a weapon as opposed to a shield. So you have an individual who is angry at her boyfriend. And so she calls police, says he just pushed me or slapped me or hit me. And maybe he has got a prior record. And like that, there's a warrant out for his arrest and he's sitting in jail for days waiting to get out. And then what happens on the court date? She doesn't show up. Case gets dismissed and nothing happens to her. Yeah. And his life nothing has been just thro thrown upside down. And so it happens in some jurisdictions more than others, but so frequently I see that happening where individuals use the courts as a tool when they know, for example, the person has a, a prior history or whatever, maybe so. Everyone makes mistakes. But then, of course, we're dealing with a situation of it's, they know that's going to happen. They know they're on probation, maybe, and they call their agent. They fabricate something. And, sometimes, and it, oftentimes, it is purely fabricated. And we can actually prove it's fabricated. Sometimes, I've actually seen situations where I have text messages from a alleged victim saying, if you don't pay me, I'm going to say you assaulted me. And then she, he doesn't pay her. She claims it. And we're able to establish he was working across town that time. Even with all this proof, even with all this evidence, nothing happens to her. Right. Nothing happens. And it's time and time again where it's not just, I'm not, I'm going to quote uh, the, uh, the line from uh, My Cousin Vinny, which is one of my favorite movies. I know <laughs> The judge says to Joe Pesci, Mr. Bankin, Bankin, um, Gambini, I'm not going to revamp the entire judicial process because you find yourself in the unique position of having a, a client that says they didn't do it. <laughs> so that's one of my favorite lines. And, but it's not just my client telling me something. I actually have proof. I can verify where he was, what he was doing, that it was fabricated, and yet nothing ever happens. And so it it's going to just repeat itself. And that's what happens. And those abuses are what bother me more than anything because you have people who lose their jobs, lose housing, and have to be sitting in jail for days and days and days, if not longer, over a fabricated charge because these individuals know there's no recourse if they go ahead and file these charges, if they're doing so just because they're angry or upset at somebody. Yeah, the, especially in the domestic violence context as far as the spite of, you know, because domestic violence doesn't have to be somebody that they're currently with. It can be, you know, an ex and I've seen it too many times where it's been a vindictive nature. Uh, hopefully as, at some point we, we as the defense bar can be able to get together and try to try to convince somebody uh, to push legislation uh, to at least 
allow there to be some type of uh, recourse when you can prove that it was essentially like an abusive process on the victim's uh, point of view. That would, I think, help as a deterrent one day, right? <laughs> now, the cross-examination uh, section, this is uh, very straightforward, quick questions. You don't have to think about them very long. Just trying to get a little bit of, uh, this is kind of more of the fun section. So what's your favorite law-related movie? Well, I can't. Just, I think you just I, previewed I, it. I think you might have just get given it to us. Yeah, I, I, can't, I have a hard time watching serious law movies uh, or even TV shows. I can't sure. watch them. Like, well, I can't because they're, they take too many um, liberal <laughs> uh, choices and actions in those movies. The problem is if you're trying to be serious, you have to be accurate. And if you're not accurate, I, I find myself wanting to throw a shoot the TV because you can't do that. You can't say it. I just get frustrated. But when it's satire, you can get right. away with so much more. But like my cousin Vinny is the top of the list. Liar, liar is another good one. Those, it's those perfect. are perfect. I can watch them over and over. <laughs> and uh, I, one of these days, I, I've been telling myself for years I'm going to do it, and I can't do it in a very serious case. I'm going to use a line from one of the movies in a court case. I did a little bit use one where I asked a police officer a question, and he answered with, "You could say that," and I responded. I did say that. Would you say that? Which is a kind of Joe Pesci's line. Right. But, uh, I, was, I was very subtle about it. I think the prosecutor kind of gave me an eyebrow raise. <laughs> that was it. But one of these days, I'm going to go full force, and I hope it's going to be recorded. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's amazing. What's your favorite law-related book? I don't get to read many law books. <laughs> Transcripts, books if you can count those, right? Uh, I'll tell you, the one thing I do like reading are stories of innocence projects. Um, uh, some. It usually, it's not really books, more like novellas where they're shorter or what have you. But hearing, uh, it's, you know, we think we're progressive. We think we're advanced, and we are in many ways. But it wasn't that long ago when things were some completely different, where individuals were being prosecuted, put in jail for, for nonsense and nothing and loose, weak evidence, whether it's racially driven or what have you. And it's not that long ago. It's in my lifetime it happened. I mean, I was born in the 70s, and there are cases even in the mid-late 70s of, and I, I was even reading early this morning, a, a case of where someone, I think the longest um, sentence ever, I can pull up, I actually have to pull up in front of my screen here. It was an individual by the name of um, Richard Phillips, who spent 46 years in prison. He's the longest person to ever stay in prison for um, a wrongful conviction. So, and he was convicted back in the 70s. And it was, I've been reading over the evidence, and I just can't believe that one, he was convicted, but two, he was even prosecuted. Today, he wouldn't even be prosecuted under these charges and the allegations and the evidence. But back then, in a very different time, he was convicted and spent 46 years of life in prison for a fabricated charge against him. It's really unbelievable. Yeah, really unbelievable. And so which lawyer in history would you want to meet if you could? Well, it's uh, probably it'd be... Uh, the Supreme, well, it could just be a lawyer. It wouldn't be anybody just had a big trial. It's, it's an individual who was a forward thinker that did a lot. And um, Supreme Court justices are obviously <laughs> always uh, one of the big things. And uh, I'll tell you, with, uh, with me, it was Earl Warren um, is uh, one of the, the, the one that jumps out to mind. Uh, he was Supreme Court justice for about, um, I think it was like 15, 16 years back from the 50s to the late 60s. And he was a very, very progressive thinker. And the one case that he was, he was the, the center point behind was Miranda. Now he, he was the one case that said individuals have the right to remain silent. And it's not just during the arrest, it's the entire judicial process. 
Um, so he was a very liberal thinker, forward thinker, and of course there were many individuals that, that what he thinks, what he thought at the time is what's commonplace now and is conformed. Back then, there was a lot of pushback. He also had Brown versus Board of Education, which was the desegregation of, um, of schools. And also with like, um, he was um, a proponent of uh, permitting interracial marriage, which also was uh, this disallowed at the time. But in his 16 years on the bench, he also had other liberal thinkers at the same time, uh, individuals who really set the stage for treating everyone as human beings, as opposed to lesser than others. And also the rights of individuals um, who, against the police state, which is also, that's very true to what I do. I mean, everyone says desegregation schools, of course, it's, 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 how could you think anywhere else? But that doesn't affect me on a day-to-day -day basis today, whereas Miranda affects me and the work Every I do day. and the individuals that I help. Awesome. That's a great answer. And so, well, list one thing that you do that, that makes you a better lawyer. What's like one, you know, it doesn't have to be anything uh, that's law related. Just what's, what's one thing you do? You know, we've had people previously say uh, that they do boxing, you know, like a fitness boxing, other people meditate, you know, other people go for a long run, you know, what's one thing you do that think, you think makes you a better lawyer? Everyone needs a way to, to, to break free and stress out. So non-law non related. And I actually have a, I'll show you right here. I have a right here. <laughs> That's a broom ball stick. It's a sport that I play with my wife, actually. I am a competitive broom ball player. It's a variation of ice hockey. If you play in a rank full helmet gear and everything, I've been playing for about 10 years. And I've traveled to Minnesota, New York, all across the country. I have friends that travel outside the country to go to tournaments in Europe and even Australia. And uh, it's, um, I'm a very competitive player. I've played it on the national level and even won a national tournament a few years ago, about uh, seven years ago. Um, on, That's uh, awesome. So That's it's great. I do daily and it's kind of rough now because I haven't been able to play in months uh, since the quarantine, but I'm looking forward to it. And I have a lot of friends that also we talk about it and what we want to do when we get back into things. But that's what I do to, to kind of break free and collide with people and have, have a lot of fun playing, playing it. That's great. That's, that's great. What would you do if you weren't a lawyer? What's your dream job? You, sh you shoot that moonshot and you could just say, you know, this is, this is the dream job outside of, you know, obviously you're living the dream now, but well, at, at what, what would be the other dream? My dreams of the NFL probably are gone just by age alone. <laughs> uh, I couldn't tell you. I mean, it's just one of those things where it's, you know, I think about the individual, for example, who, um, MySpace, well, you know, who created Tom from MySpace. Tom, yeah, Tom. Was, he just created a website and when he sold MySpace for a few hundred million dollars and then walked away, and of course, then a tank shortly thereafter. I've read a story about him recently. What he does is he just travels the world. He doesn't, they didn't buy a big mansion. He's not throwing, buying yachts. He just travels the world, spends a couple of weeks in their country and just, that's what he's doing for years because he's a very just kind of laid back down earth guy and he wants to fill his time doing things. So uh, there, there's an old expression that, if, you know, obviously it, law aside, but you find something you love to do, do it for a living and never work a day in your life. I feel a little bit about law that way, but if it wasn't a matter of that, it's just a way to, you know, now that I, I have children, I am married and um, that family's important, be able to do all the things you want to do and find reward. There's a lot of ways to go. It's, I'm not going to say be an actor, be an at, be, be sport, you know, go into movies. It's, it's all just a means to an end, just as long as it's rewarding. Because I, I could say it'd be great to be an actor, but I, I have no idea what being an actor is like. Right, you could be miserable. <laughs> exactly, I could, I could hate it. So it's a matter of being just being rewarding, spending time with family and doing what I want to do. That's all it comes down to.
That's perfect. All right. So this is how we end every show. Uh, we, it's our war stories. It's your choice. You could either tell us about a specific case you had or a specific moment. You know, it can be funny. You know, it's kind of the courtroom scene kind of earlier, like when you discussed when, you, you know, your first uh, courtroom appearance and, and you were stuck uh, with the judge. Ultimately, you knew what was going to happen, uh, asking you a question that, you know, you ultimately wouldn't know the answer to. So is there a specific case that you've worked on that's just it's that that's the case that is your go to in, in your mind as far as that you're most proud of or, you know, a funny courtroom moment, you know, my cousin Vinny moment? I'll tell you, it's um, the proudest moment probably is not the funniest moment, <laughs> but I'll tell you, there's actually two things I want to, two individuals I want to bring up. One is recent, because that's it's fresher, so that's one, and it just shows how things play out. It was a guy, and this is an individual who was charged with felony drug charges. He has a prior record from years ago, like 15 years ago. Uh, prosecutor first came to me and says, I'm asking for 16 years in prison if your guy wants to plead guilty. I said, you got to do better than that. He said, how about 14? I told him to do better. He said, how about 11? I said, do better. He said, no, I'm not doing better than that. <laughs> I said, your case is weak. He says, I don't care. I think I can get it guilty. I'm, I'm asking for 11 years. That's my best offer. And for weeks, the prosecutor pushed me to take it. My client said to me initially, listen, if you can get me down to seven years, I'll take it. He wouldn't serve. He'd probably serve maybe three or seven and get out early, early release. And the prosecutor said, no. And finally, it was the day before, night before trial. Night before trial, the prosecutor says, fine, I'll do seven. I talked to my clients, like, screw him. <laughs> He's dragging me out this far? Screw him. We're not doing it. We're going to trial. I said, okay. Not guilty. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> not guilty. The prosecutor, when it's over, and his case fell apart, because he was just, I mean, it was, it was just, the, their key witness was terrible, and it was just, it went our way. Prosecutor's like, how this happened? And I said to him early on, like I said to the prosecutor, and I told him, friendly, your case is weak. You should have given me five years, which is the first thing I asked for, and he would have taken it. But I mean, you know, that's not a person, it's not because the person didn't necessarily do something. <laughs> it's more a matter the state couldn't prove it. And you have to go by the strength of the case. You have to be fair. And even, and I, even I talked to another prosecutor in the same building who I had a jury trial with just earlier who, where my client was found not guilty. And I said, he wants 11 years. And she looked at me and said, so he wants a trial, right? Because he's not going to get that. <laughs> and even the, the prosecutor in the workshop said that. But that's just a funny recent story that I have. Well, but the other, the other was, individual. The one thing I'll, I'll interject, the, the lesson I learned from that story, which I think if you know, young lawyers listening, the real key is you weren't afraid to go to trial. Night before, you were still prepared that you weren't afraid to try the case. I mean, Many that, attorneys are, and it's always, I mean, it's always intimidating. No matter how long you practice, there's always going to be those butterflies because there's a lot on the line here. Someone's life at stake. And which leads me to the second individual who I'll just mention by first name. His name is Raymond. And Raymond has had to hire me twice. The first time was about nine years ago where he was charged with first degree assault and the prosecutor wanted prison time for him. He was um, a security bouncer, if you will, at a club where a brawl broke out. And somebody took somebody, gripped them by the neck, and smashed their head into the ground, messed up their face. And um, multiple individuals claimed um, that it was Raymond. And uh, what happened was, the key, but everyone, all these individuals are drunk. The, the key witness said that at the very end of his testimony, that they saw, you know, who they thought was Raymond do it. And then about five minutes later, police were escorting him out the back door with handcuffs. 
And the first time I heard this, in this case, like a year and a half to go to trial, was right there in the stand. I'm sitting there looking at him. And, I, and on cross-examination, I asked him to repeat it. He repeated it. And I said, so you saw the person in handcuffs, right? Yes. And my, the last question I had to this witness was, if I told you that Raymond was actually not arrested that night, was actually walked away on his own, and was only arrested the next day, if I told you that, you said the person who did it was in handcuffs. So you would agree that if this individual, Raymond, was not in handcuffs, he couldn't have been the one to do it. And the witness looked at me and says, well, yeah, that'd be true. And the, what this individual didn't know is that before he testified, the officer testified <laughs> that he did not arrest Raymond until the next day. And he was, so he was sequestered. All witnesses were at the leave the room. They didn't hear each other so for that Perfect. reason. And he was innocent. He absolutely was innocent. He didn't do this. And everyone's drunk. They mistook it. And he was found not guilty. And it was the right thing to do. But let's fast forward now because there's a reason I'm bringing this story up here. Because a few years later, Raymond's mother called me up and said, Raymond's had an accident. I said, what happened? Well, he was um, on a motorcycle and a car cut him off. And he flew off and his girlfriend behind him died. And he was being charged with, negligent, uh, with homicide, negligent manslaughter. No alcohol involved. And he was charged. He was officially charged. And now he's facing a trial where for the death of the person who was you know, his girlfriend that he was cared about. And uh, the fact is, I pushed hard. I dug into this. And it turns out the car that cut him off was a pizza delivery guy that was looking for a drive, slowing down, speeding up, slowing down, speeding up. And Raymond on a motorcycle behind him was struck with this guy doing it. And he slowed down, no turn signal, because the pizza delivery guy was trying, well, he was trying to find his address, had his phone in his hand, and then saw and cut left without, and while everyone around him, without using a signal. And that's my T-bone. And not only, and here's how far we went investigation. There was a Facebook posting about the accident. People were commenting. And I reached out to one of the individuals that commented. Her comment was, I actually arrived at the scene and I was there. I spoke to the individual and they told me the pizza delivery guy tried to leave from this accident scene because he says, I have to deliver my pizza or else I get in trouble with my boss. <laughs> That's how much of, of a, let's say, I'm going to use the word, the asshole this kid was <laughs> and how irres irresponsible and how un- Un, you know, just unemotional he was to the fact that there is two people lying on the street, one of which died, and he wants to go deliver his pizza. When I found this out with the prosecutor, their case unraveled and they ended up dismissing the entire thing. So, you know, these types of victories are rewarding where you have a good individual. He, and Raymond has no criminal record, no history, has been working hard for, he's almost 40 years old his entire life, and two times He's been accused of committing felonies and has to go to trial potentially to save his life. That's the rewarding part of my job. And that's what gets, keeps me going. Yes, I help anybody. And I, I drive and work as hard for anybody that comes my way as Raymond. But I feel I stand taller and I smile more often. And I feel better about what I do because of people like Raymond. And it's really an indescribable feeling, uh, you know, for anybody that hasn't done criminal defense work and been able to, to either hear that, 
you know, two word uh, verdict, you know, not guilty, how sweet it is. Right. But, or be in a position to get a case dismissed like Raymond's. I, it's really, I mean, it's, it, it's one of the best feelings and certainly indescribable. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost spiritual. Like you said, you walk Absolutely. taller and, and smile. So, uh, man, it's just been great to have you on the show. Uh, I certainly enjoyed uh, kind of going through your career and, you know, your passion uh, for defending the, you know, the, the accused. And just glad to have you on. And, you know, certainly where can people find you if they need to look you up? You know, where, where are you at on social media, the website, that kind of thing? Where's the best place to, to find you if they well, need the, you? The, the, you know, there's a lot of ways that people can find me on, on Facebook. I have an AVO profile, Super Lawyers. Um, there's, you know, the website itself, of course, has it. Even you can Google my name and find it. Fortunately, with a name like Oleg Vostovsky, I don't have too many others. Although there is another one in Maryland. I found him before. I know the guy. He's a little older. He doesn't do law. But chances are, you just Google my name. It's, and I'm kind of like Cher. When I call a prosecutor, I just say it's Oleg. And they and always know who I am. I don't think of a last name. It's that's perfect. Nice. That's perfect. That's great. I mean, look, that's your brand, right? Oleg. It's, uh... it's nice because I mean, not many Oleg people know. So it's nice. That's great. Well, thank you again for being on the show. You know, now, uh, certainly if you, if you enjoy our podcast, you know, check us out on Facebook and at Twitter, we're at injustice pod, Facebook, it's the obstructing injustice podcast. Again, this, we got to do this is lawyer stuff, right? Disclaimers. This isn't legal advice. It's just general information. We're having a good time, hopefully, uh, teaching young lawyers how to, how to be better lawyers and teaching the public, uh, what good criminal defense lawyers do try to get rid of that stigma that the defense bar has. Cause at the end of the day, we serve the public and you know, we're out there to, to pursue justice. And again, no attorney client relationships created, you know, and any past results don't guarantee future results. If you got an interesting case, if you got a case that you got a question on or an issue, you got any problems and you need help, you're in Maryland, call Oleg. All right. You know, it's, it, He'll certainly meet with you and give you time to speak. And so, again, at the end of the day, you know, what the reason we do this, this is the reason we get up in the morning is to help people. And uh, we just, we enjoy it. And so, you know, thanks for listening and catch us uh, next time. Thanks. All right. All right take care. All right. Take care.